Thanks very much, Ellie. Good morning to you all. Um, uh, do keep Psalm 129 open in front of you. I know we're not all English here today, but it is, it is a bit odd being English, isn't it? Um, we've got strange laws. You know that one about uh, how the Queen owns all the swans in the country, and if you kill a swan, then you get sent to jail. That, that one about um, if, you, uh, if it's after midnight on a Sunday and you've got a crossbow and you're in Chester, you're allowed to kill a Welshman. Um, I learned a new one this week. Um, if you put a stamp on upside down, that's apparently treason because it's disrespectful to the Queen. I, I not, didn't know that one, but I, I wholly approve. Um, it is, um, it's not just weird laws, though, is it, that makes the English a bit odd. Our kind of social conventions are a bit strange, the way we interact with people. Um, I, I enjoy the observations of Kate Fox, who, who wrote a book called Watching the English, which was quite famous a while back. And she talks about how conversations about the weather are not really conversations about the weather at all. Uh, talking about the weather is a form of code. It's evolved to help us overcome our natural reserve and actually talk to each other. So we say, oh, isn't it cold? Or, or nice day, isn't it? Uh, and that's just code for, I'd quite like to talk to you. Would you like to talk to me? It's simply another way of saying hello. The object of the English is to kind of casually drift into conversation, she says, as though it were by accident. That rings true for me. And one of our particular idiosyncrasies uh, is the way that we complain about things. Again, as Kate Fox says, uh, one of the important rules of moaning is that if you're going to moan, you must do so in a good-humoured and light-hearted way. However genuinely grumpy you feel, you must disguise it as mock grumpiness. And of course, the idea that we might have something to grumble about at all is just completely normal, because we live there was this sense of kind of just passive, resigned acceptance that things are just bound to go wrong, that life is full of little irritations and difficulties, and that one must simply put up with it. Nothing ever works properly, something always goes wrong, and on top of that, it's bound to rain. To the English, she says, these are established incontrovertible facts. They are on a par with the, law of, the laws of physics, which is why typical is our usual refrain when something goes wrong. And then we say, we must just carry on. Uh, the English. We, we are an odd bunch. Uh, and even when faced with something more troublesome than rain, with life's greatest enemies, we have our own understated way of responding, don't we? We don't like to make a fuss. A friend of ours was telling Katie and I recently about someone whose mother had died and they'd had a carer in their last few days of illness. The carer barely knew the mother, uh, but they came from a culture where grief was expressed in a particular way. And so they asked if they could go in and pay respects to the mother in the, the front room where she was lying. And she went in to see this person she barely knew, she'd met once or twice, and began wailing and weeping and wringing her hands and the heartbroken daughter, who was truly heartbroken, could only stand by and watch awkwardly and then politely ask the carer not to make quite such a fuss, please. Kind of a very English scene, isn't it? When people express emotion to us, we feel uncomfortable. We're suspicious of moaners, of eeyores, of anyone who refuses to look on the bright side of life. Mustn't grumble is our national motto. There's always someone worse off than us. Well, for those reasons and more, Reading a psalm like this one, Psalm 129, is good for us. Because in it we are shown that rather than underplaying them or hiding from them, we should face our struggles head on and that we can do that without wallowing in self-pity. As we'll see, 
Doing that is actually a path to blessing and encouragement and strengthening. So in some ways, the choice that we are facing this morning is, will we deal with our struggles in an English way or in a Christian way? And my hope is that we will resolve to do the latter. It's a quite straightforward psalm to explain, I think, so let me walk through it first before drawing some conclusions. There's a couple of ways you could split it up. Uh, I'm going to split it up into two halves, verses 1 to 4 first, and then verses 5 to 8. And verses 1 to 4 uh, is about, uh, uh, about two things. Uh, let me read it first again. Uh, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So those verses are about two things. Firstly, the affliction that Israel has faced. And then secondly, the reason that they've survived it. So you could call the section, we're greatly afflicted, but we're still here. The psalm is about the nation as a whole, reflecting together on their history. Perhaps they were facing some difficulty right now, some opposition. And as they face this current opposition, they choose to look back and remind themselves that, you know, this isn't a new situation for us. We've been here before. In fact, ever since we were a young nation, we've experienced affliction. They could think back to their time in Egypt, afflicted by Pharaoh. Then how they were afflicted by all those, those ites countries, you know, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, the... Uh, I wrote some others down, I can't remember them now, I can't find them on the page. Uh, the Philistines, Babylon, Assyria, Assyria, depending on when the psalm was written, all of these nations might have been on their mind. Their history had rarely been a peaceful one. And the same, of course, is true for us. As individuals, as a church worldwide and, and individually as a church. There's that famous quote in there, nothing is certain except death and taxes, but it's wrong. Fuel prices are certain as well, but also suffering. Suffering is certain. In verse 3, added description is given to this suffering, and it's not pleasant reading. Uh, the nation describes itself as like a field, and the enemies are like farmers, plowing their backs, dragging their sharp plows over the field, digging into them mercilessly with the intent of getting from the land whatever profit they could. It's like Israel is lying face down in, in, in the mud, tied up and helpless, or an enemy takes them for all they've got and leaves these deep, painful scars as a souvenir. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Israel's commanded to say it twice, aren't they? Let them say it again, greatly afflicted. Israel is not interested in hiding from the pain. There is no stiff upper lip here, no grin and bear it, no attempt to minimize it. We are supposed to hear what they say and feel the pain and wince as we do so. But they don't stop there, do they? Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Yes, the, the list of nations and people that have afflicted them is as long as those furrows on their back, but the Lord has preserved them. He's brought them through the Red Sea, through 40 years of desert wanderings, through conflicts and sieges and betrayals and conspiracies, all those things that have marked their history. 
and the reason that they've made it through, as verse 4 makes clear, is because of the Lord. He is righteous and he has cut the cords of the wicked. The cords there might refer to the cords of the plough, so the plough were tied to oxen and the oxen would drag the plough along and if you cut the cords, the oxen just wander off and do their own thing and uh, no harm is done. Or the cords might refer to the ropes that kind of bound Israel up in the first place and, and rendered them helpless. Either way, the wicked do not prevail because the Lord disarms them. The Lord protects and preserves and keeps his people. As we'll sing later, he is the one who holds them fast. Greatly afflicted and yet still here because of the Lord. The Lord in capital letters there, the the God of the covenant who promised never to abandon his people and who has kept his promise in the past. And so we know he will keep it now in our present suffering, they say. And as we look forwards, he will keep it there too. Uh, The rest of the psalm, verse 5 to 8, the second half, is a prayer that God would continue to act against those who oppose God's people, those who hate Zion. Again, the images are agricultural. The prayer is that the enemies would be like like grass on the housetops. If you uh, don't clear your gutters uh, in your own home, then eventually the leaves and the mud and all of that gathers together, doesn't it? And you get a little bit of thin layer of soil in your gutters and eventually you see some little tufts of green grass sprouting up and you realise that you have to find someone with a tall ladder or uh, resent paying someone with a tall ladder to to remove the grass for you. But then you throw it in the bin, don't you? Because that grass is useless. The same back in, uh, in the day here. The rooftops were flat, but you'd often get seeds lodging in them and beginning to sprout grass. But not the kind of grass that anyone was interested in. No farmer would be harvesting it. It was rootless and fruitless and futureless and just pointless and worthless and ignored. And the prayer is that that is what the Lord would make God's enemies like. They've been trying to profit from Israel and get get what they can from Israel, plowing their back, but they themselves are going to end up profitless, worthless, Verse 8 refers to the tradition of people who would walk by harvesters in the field, uh, greeting the harvesters of a good crop and praying for blessings upon them. But this crop, Israel prays, is not one which anyone will be celebrating. The prayer is that the Lord would bring appropriate justice, bring shame upon their enemies, a punishment which fits their crime. The plowers who are willing to treat Israel as if it was worthless will themselves be seen by all to be worthless. The Lord is a God of of recompense and justice and appropriate judgment on his enemies. And Israel prays that that's what he would do. He is righteous. And so that's our psalm. What should we we learn from it? How can we make this a psalm that we sing too? Uh, I'm just going to make two points really here. The first one I'll say more about than the second. Uh, The first is we should cultivate a habit of naming our pains. Cultivate a habit of naming our pains. Expressing them to the Lord and to one another as well. Could it be that we don't do that very much or very well? Is it a bit too honest, a bit too open a bit too risky for us to speak like that to the Lord and to each other? 
Do we prefer that very English but unchristian method of keep calm and carry on? When the government introduced that slogan, which is over, uh, all over posters and mugs these days, isn't it? But when they introduced a slogan back in the war, keep calm and carry on, the reason they thought it was great was because it advocated that because of its sober restraint, was how the government described it. That's what they liked about it, sober restraint. We even celebrate our Englishness, don't we? We think we're great because of our sober restraint. But actually, that's a path more likely to lead us, in the terms of Psalm 129, lead us to being eaten away inside by, by bitterness and, and pain. It might seem admirably strong to put a brave face on things. It might seem like you're displaying great trust in the Lord to keep calm and carry on. But in some senses, it's, it's a dead end. It doesn't lead you anywhere. I don't know why there's one particular example from uh, over the years of uh, someone, someone talking to me about their struggles, and um, it particularly hit home um, how this person was talking. It was from many years ago. Um, a student who, who uh, struggled with a, a, um, a chronic leg problem. They had like a, a chronic sore on their leg, and it, it needed lots of treatment and, um, and lots of hospital visits and pain and, and caused them lots of bother, and they were just really, really sad about it, um, understandably so. Uh, they were frustrated and, and consumed by it. But they were really unwilling to talk about it. And the thing which they uh, kept on saying was, there are people much worse off than I. I'll be fine. I'll carry on. It's just a small example, but we all can do things like that, can't we? Brush things off and fail to acknowledge the real impact of things and fail to deal with them well. Because the point is that if we are willing to name our pains and, and remember that, that yet of Psalm t- of verse 2, instead of a dead end and being eaten up inside us, we find a door opening up to something much, much better. I read a helpful book this summer, uh, which I meant to bring with me this morning and I forgot, um, all about the art of Christian lament. Um, And they talked about yet in Psalms like this and described that yet as the place where pain and belief can coexist. I like that phrase, the place where pain and belief can coexist. He talks about yets as being like a bridge from pain to praise. I like that phrase too. A bridge from pain to praise. Because suffering and and affliction, it's a potential faith killer, isn't it? It can poison our faith quickly or slowly. It can embitter our souls and, and, and weaken our trust. It can feel like it's just rinsing us of all that we've got and leaving nothing but scars. But it can also be the first step on a fruitful path to praise and trust, where we're strengthened rather than weakened. That yet is what stops naming your pains being self-pity and wallowing and self-obsession. That yet they have not prevailed against me turns the focus away from you and onto the reason that they haven't prevailed against you, onto the Lord. Pain and belief coexist.
while prepping for this morning, I realized that I didn't just want to put negative examples in of, of how we don't do this very well. Because this isn't a psalm to bash us over the head with and, and say, you must do better. It's a description of how God's people do behave. And so as I look out over you and, and think about our church family, I see people who are examples of pain and belief coexisting. People over whom the enemy has not prevailed. I see people who've had children with serious illness. People whose children have died. People who've lived with chronic and painful and weakening illnesses. People who've dealt with difficult family situations. People whose loved ones have uh, suffered and we've had to watch. People who've persevered with chronic mental illness. Difficult situations of divorce and childlessness and joblessness. That's who we are, isn't it? That describes us. People who are afflicted. And while it's sometimes been a struggle with ups and downs, I see people who have said and who have sung, as we've sung already this morning, the Lord has not prevailed. He is righteous. And it is a great encouragement, isn't it, to see people like that in our church family. Of course, I'm sure we could do this more and cultivate it more. Maybe one of the ways we could do this is is just work at being a little more honest with one another. I was hearing just this week of one church member going through some real struggles and how they'd felt able to share those struggles in a connect group. But we're not always too good at that, are we? So maybe in your connect groups, which are starting up again uh, in the next week or two, you could think together about how to cultivate a habit of naming your pains together. Not embarrassed about admitting that life is hard. Not ignoring that pain and not forgetting that yet. They have not prevailed. Is that something about how we could do it together? Maybe it's something that needs to start in our personal prayer times. It's possible that we give God the silent treatment. We're disillusioned by unanswered prayers, worn down by pains and confusion, things we don't understand, and we just stop talking to him about it. So perhaps it's not suffering that is the faith killer, but it's silence in suffering which is the faith killer. Name our pains. Name them in your, in your prayers. Sometimes that's hard. Why not keep a journal? Write them down. Sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to, to verbalize things, and, and writing it down is hard, saying, this is what's hard at the moment, Lord, and find some words... Uh, or images like the singers in this psalm do to describe it or express it. It might be that you can't uh, see or feel anything positive in what you're going through. Write that down. But also write down, yet they have not prevailed against me. You're still here. It might feel like you're hanging by a thread, but you're still here. The Lord is keeping you going. And remembering that, letting that naming of the pain turn into that remembrance of God's keeping of you, that will feed your faith and strengthen you. It's also, of course, something we need to do corporately as well. This is a very corporate psalm. So let's think for a moment about the, the church through the ages as a whole. The church of Jesus Christ has been afflicted from its youth. 
from those nations in the Old Testament afflicting God's people to the Pharisees of the New, to Pilate, to Caesar, to Nero, to, you can tell I've done my homework here, Domitian and Trajan and Marcus Aurelius and Severus and Maximus and Decius and Valerian. And that's just in the first 200 years, successive Roman empires, emperors who persecuted God's church. And it continued. And it still continues now. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a a, a cheerful read. Uh, It's not, actually. It's a classic Christian book which details all of the gruesome things that have been done by those who have plowed the backs of God's people through the ages. He died uh, in 1587, but if he had lived until our day, he would have had plenty more to write of. The list is too long, but I went on the Open Doors website, which is a a helpful website uh, which talks of the persecuted church around the world, Number one on their list, Afghanistan, where this is their description. If a Christian's new faith is discovered, their family, clan, or tribe has to save its honor by disowning the believer or even killing them. This is widely considered to be a just reaction. Alternatively, since leaving Islam is considered a sign of insanity, a Christian who's converted from Islam may be forcibly sectioned in a psychiatric hospital. If a woman converts from Islam to Christianity and her family do not, she is likely to face house arrest, sexual abuse, rape, violence, forced marriage to a Muslim, or even an honour killing. The furrows are long and deep, aren't they? And yet, they have not prevailed. Rightly or wrongly, the Open Doors website doesn't have any information on affliction of the church in our country. Uh, But we are afflicted. Words are very painful, aren't they? There is no shame in feeling the pain of words that are spoken against us. Scorn leaves its scars. And we know scorn from our nation, don't we? We know that the forces of politics, of education, of commerce, of business, of mainstream ethics and family values and gender issues and so on... They're like winds, like gale force winds often, blowing in our faces and making life really difficult. And there is no embarrassment in naming those afflictions. They are hard. Let's hear them in our prayer meeting next week. Greatly we have been afflicted and will continue to be so, and who knows how and where and when, but it will come. But the church is still here. The church is still growing. The Lord has cut the cords of the wicked. So, name those pains and let that that naming of the pains turn into a yet. They have not prevailed. That will feed our faith and strengthen us. Uh, uh, Secondly, lastly, remember that the only place which begins to make any sense of suffering is, is the cross. There are plenty of questions that we'd be left with Uh, from this psalm, aren't there? Suffering always raises lots of questions, many loose ends. Does the psalm promise protection? Has the Lord really cut our cords? It doesn't feel like it always. Sometimes it feels like we're still tied up on the floor, face down in the mud, having those furrows ripped into our backs. Are we to pray for shame upon our enemies too? Lots of questions. And the best place to help to start Navigating those loose ends is to remember the cross of Jesus. Many people have drawn comparisons with with that furrowed back of verse 3 and the 
the scourges inflicted on Jesus by those Roman whips before he was crucified. He suffered as the true Israel from his youth. His suffering was innocent and more than we can imagine. And yet in one of God's great reversals, his suffering meant that the cords of the wicked were cut from us. The devil was disarmed at the cross. Sin's power over us, which holds us in its cords, ping is just snapped off at the cross. The victory has been won already by Jesus. Um, I'm going to read a couple of verses from Colossians uh, chapter 2, which just, uh, just describe this in similar language to uh, to Psalm 129 here. Um, so listen to how uh, the victory has been won on the cross. Uh, enemies have not prevailed against Jesus, and because of that, they will not prevail against us. So, um, describing the cross, uh, God ca- uh, is uh, cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This record of debt, God set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's the cross which is the answer ultimately to those uh, prayers of verses 5 to 8. We don't see it all worked out now. But the heavenly realms are well aware of who has won. They know the score. For us, we wait for him to return when all of verses 5 to 8 there will be, be, be answered fully and publicly and gloriously. And we're waiting. We've sung about waiting this morning already. I, I love the, song, the songs that we've sung. And as we wait, we follow in his footsteps. We do continue to suffer. We have to. Why? Well, If Jesus' apparent shame and defeat on the cross was actually victory, a victory which shamed the others in that great reversal, if his shame puts his enemies to shame, if his weakness and foolishness shames the strength and wisdom of the world, then we who follow should expect the same for us. So the way that God will answer our prayers of verses 5 to 8 is more likely to be by using our weakness and shame to shame them than by making life easy and taking our suffering away. That's really hard, isn't it? It's really hard. But we can suffer knowing that it's not an endless suffering and it's not a pointless suffering. We know that the Lord is righteous. They will not prevail. And we should take strength and confidence from that. So let's not be English about suffering. Let's be Christian about it. Name it. Know that the Lord has preserved us in the past through it and will continue to preserve us in the future through it. And trust him to achieve his purposes through it too. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, just as we come out of the womb wailing and crying, and pain marks the first moments of our life, so it continues to mark the rest of our lives too. Uh, Partly because we're human, uh, but also because we are your people. And Father, that really does bring pains. Uh, It is hard to comprehend sometimes. It is hard to deal with and keep going through sometimes. Uh, But we thank you that throughout the ages, uh, you have preserved your people. The enemy has not prevailed. And we thank you that on the cross, uh, the devil did not prevail against Jesus, but Jesus rose in, in victory gloriously. And that apparent shame of the cross was actually the defeat of the devil and uh, all uh, our enemies. Uh, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, please uh, feed our faith in him. Strengthen us to continue following him, no matter what that means and brings. And we thank you that he is returning one day when all will be put right. The Lord is righteous. You have cut our cords and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Let's stand and sing together that celebration that we can trust the Lord uh, to keep us, to hold us fast.